Hey everyone, Trace here, and welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're going to rebroadcast episode number 34, where we explore the periodic table of elements from top to bottom, left to right. We're going to answer, what were the first elements ever discovered? And what was there before the periodic table? And speaking of, how did we get here? I mean, it's huge, right? Where did this thing come from? We'll also look at the building blocks of the periodic table, getting us to modern day chemistry. We're going to dive super deep into the stories of the science, the history, and more. All about this chart that everyone needs to know if you want to do science. It's going to be interesting, so let's get right to it. The periodic table that we use today is a list of elements, but it's actually more than just a list of elements. It's not even really a table. It's actually a tool. It's like a mnemonic to understand how all the elements fit together and what they all can do. With the periodic table, scientists can, at a glance, predict chemical reactions. They can show how different elements relate to each other. They can talk about the properties of each element and relate them to other elements. And they're all grouped in different sections. And I mean, there's a lot going on in just what is a simple table hanging on all of the chemistry classrooms in all of the world. But the invention of the periodic table itself, this wasn't just a simple thing. This took hundreds and hundreds of years and scientist after scientist trying to figure it out. It actually stretches all the way back more than 2,000 years to 330 BCE, when Aristotle looked at the elements of earth, air, fire, and water, and figured, we need to organize these somehow. It's getting, it's getting unwieldy. In the 1700s, a long time later, by then, Antoine Lavoisier wrote down what they knew of as 33 different elements. They classified them as metals and non-metals, but the thing is, in the 1700s, chemistry wasn't that awesome. So, Most of these things weren't actually elements. They're like, oh, rock, that's an element. Not really. Lavoisier knew rocks were lots of elements. But the idea being, they didn't know they could break them down further than they had. By the 1800s, 100 years later, chemists had figured out, oh, some of these break up into other pieces. There are 63 different elements, and their properties and compounds were added into this list And now chemists started to notice that there were patterns among these 63 different elements. There were some physical properties that were similar. There were some chemical properties that were similar. Maybe we can start organizing these into a more easy-to-use list than just literally a list of elements. In 1817, Johann Dobereiner grouped elements with similar properties into groups of three, which he called triads. So Johann was grouping these elements into three triads, where the center element was some kind of related to the an average of the other two elements in the triad. He wasn't entirely right on that one. He was kind of wrong, but he was trying. Look, he was trying to say that there are relationships between the elements, and we should be able to organize them in this way, maybe, perhaps, which didn't turn out to be right necessarily, but he was trying. That's the important thing. Even in 1817, they knew they could do it. They were just trying to figure out how. In 1862, A.E. Beguire de Chancotois put a list of the elements in a spiral around a cylinder. So the elements were listed by increasing atomic weight, and he stacked closely related elements, noting that their properties were repeated every seven elements, and atomic weight, first of all, that is a huge problem. That's, that's wrong, but we'll come, we'll come back to it. This led Chancourtois to say that the properties of the elements are properties of numbers. That's a big deal. While 
A.E. Bagarde Chanquatois was completely wrong about atomic weight, and it was real pretty to put it into a spiral on a cylinder, bro, but that's not going to work. However, he connected elements to numbers, and that's important. By using the chart, he was able to predict the stoichiometry of several metallic oxides. Stoichiometry is a great word. Stoichiometry, in case you don't want to look it up, sidebar, is the relationship between quantities of a substance which takes part in a reaction to form a compound. Basically, you can look at it as a ratio of different elements. It's pretty awesome. And then from that, he was all like, wait, you can predict that there are going to be elements in this repeating pattern. That's a huge advance, even though he was totally wrong. In 1863, John Newlands classified the 56 established elements into groups based on similar physical properties. So even though they figured there were more elements than 56, you can organize these 56 into this group. And he noted that similar elements existed by some multiples of eight in atomic weight. And he proposed the law of octaves and got made fun of by lots of scientists because it was a musical analogy in their... I guess not that into those for some reason. By 1868, Lothar Meyer's table created a table that would have been really awesome. You know, Lothar Meyer has a pretty similar idea to what table we use today. But foreshadowing, we didn't use his table. It listed all the known elements. It demonstrated working patterns that we knew existed. And it listed elements by atomic weight. Still a problem. Stop going atomic weight, yo. There are like a bunch of different atomic weights of uranium but uranium's still the element, so that doesn't work. You can't use atomic weight. You have to use something else. He gave it to a colleague for evaluation, and while the colleague was evaluating it, this Russian dude named Dmitry Mendeleev came out with a periodic table in 1869 that was boss. Before Meyer's colleague could get it back to him, Dmitry Mendeleev had already snatched it right out of there, and he came in with the gold standard of periodic tables. Okay, so Mendeleev, Dmitry Mendeleev. He was this old, goofy, grandpa science, crazy Russian dude. Pretty awesome. Actually, uh, the producer here, Andreas, wrote it as the Kanye of charts and sciences, which is actually pretty accurate. He was basically all like, I know your periodic table's great, but I got the best periodic table of all time. He was right. Dmitry Mendeleev was born February 8th, 1834 in Siberia. He had 16 brothers and sisters, and his father was a teacher but went blind. So mom reopened the family glass factory when his father went blind to, you know, make ends meet. Of course, then a little while later, the dad died. Uh, Mendeleev was 13. And the glass factory burned down two years later when he was 15. Needless to say, he's living in Siberia, doesn't have a glass factory or a pops. This is not going well. Uh, at 16, he won a spot at his father's former college in St. Petersburg and was like, peace, I'm going over there. Four years later, at age 20, he was making a name for himself already publishing research from the college. And he also made a name for himself by having an uncontrollable temper. He also didn't like to shower that much. He was kind of a weirdo. At age 21, Dmitry Mendeleev got a job teaching science. He went back to school to get his master's in chemistry at 21, got it a year later at 22 at the University of St. Petersburg, same place. In 1860, he was working for Robert Bunsen, at Heidelberg in Germany. You might recognize that name, Bunsen. He invented the Bunsen burner. Kind of a cool guy when it comes to chemistry. He was also working with Bunsen and a guy named Gustav Kirchhoff. They discovered the element cesium and also the element rubidium. And they also together invented the Bunsen-Kirchhoff spectroscope, which was used for the spectral analysis of materials. It's supposed to be a more accurate measurement of elements. So a spectroscope would be if you burn an element, 
then it would give off like a light signature. That light signature could be measured, and using the frequencies of that light signature, we would know exactly what element that was because each element only gives off specific frequencies. In 1860, Mendeleev attended the first ever International Chemistry Conference. It took place also in Germany, and that year, they wanted to focus on standardizing chemistry. This is when Mendeleev was all like, I can do that. I can get on it. So standardizing chemistry was important because chemistry wasn't exactly a standard science. Like, it was a lot of gentlemen scientists, a lot of people who were passionate about these things and had questions about the universe, and they were all trying to figure it out. But there wasn't, like, a fundamental level of science. We'll come back to that. So... In 1861, Mendeleev thought that Russia was trailing behind in chemistry science. He spent 61 days working and got a 500-page textbook on organic chemistry. Now, if you've ever taken organic chemistry, there's a lot of carbon, it's a lot of hydrogen, it's complicated, it's no fun, and everyone cries. He wrote a book about it in 61 days, and he won the Domodov Prize, which is essentially, it's a, like the Oscars for Russian chemistry science. It's an award you get annually from the Russian Academy of Sciences saying that you did a great job. In 1867, at age 33, he was awarded the Chair of General Chemistry at the University of St. Petersburg. So he goes back to his old alma mater. He's like big top dog now. And in this position, he was all like, we need some textbooks for these chemistry students. And he was like, most of these textbooks suck. So he decided to write his own called The Principles of Chemistry. The thing is, he realized, much like that conference, that chemistry was kind of fragmented. He wanted fundamental principles of chemistry. And he understood that at the heart of chemistry, the most basic units were most important. The most basic unit is an element. An element is something that can't be broken down any further without getting into, like, nuclear fission or fusion. You have to cut it apart or mush it with something else. You can't break that up. So Mendeleev figured there must be a logical way to organize all of these elements that they knew about, and he tried to figure this out. So he took all of these different elements, and he wrote them on 65 different cards. Then he wrote the properties of every element on its own card, including the atomic weight or the atomic mass, which is you know, all the protons and the neutrons and something. Even though he knew that the measurements weren't entirely right, he was like, look, this is what we know. We're going to organize these as best we can. He shuffled the cards, and he would, like, sit, you know, like, on trains and sit at restaurants probably and, you know, just sit around and, like, shuffle through these cards and be like, oh, okay, it's like the loneliest game of solitaire ever, trying to figure out how he could get all these cards to fit together and relate to each other. And then he fell asleep at his desk, and he wrote about it later, and he said, in a dream, I saw a table where all the elements fell into place as required. Awakening, I immediately wrote it upon a piece of paper, and two weeks later, he published the relation between the properties and atomic weights of the elements, which we call the periodic table. It was a dream. It was a dream. The numbers that you see on the periodic table today are the number of protons in each atomic structure. Mendeleev's table rose above the rest, and the reason being, he didn't try and consolidate all the known elements. He didn't try and make it a closed system. He left room on the table for new discoveries and for elements that they didn't know about at the time. He predicted the properties of those elements based on how the table is organized. Essentially, he proposed that some elements had their atomic weights measured incorrectly because some elements didn't work with his predictions. And he's like, well, 
This wouldn't work in this table that I've invented, even though all the scientists say that it weighs this much. They're wrong, obviously, because this table is right. And in the gaps, Mendeleev dropped hypothetical elements. So he would describe the reactions of that element, the weight of that element, the density of what that element would be once it's discovered. And he named one of them, for example, Eka aluminum. And later, a French chemist, Emile Lecoq, discovered an element which fit right into that spot where Eka aluminum was. He called it gallium. It weighed the same as Eka aluminum, had the same properties, the same reactions, the same densities. And he wrote a letter to Dmitry Mendeleev, and he was all like, hey, Dmitry, this is tight. And Dmitry was like, agreed. I win. This periodic table is what we still use today. At the time, we're looking at like 60-some elements maybe. Today, we have more than 100. We've added more than 50 elements. We're at 118, 120, 122. You know, we just keep adding elements to this table, but it's the same essential table that he came up with in a dream. So when you look at the periodic table, make sure you pull up one, okay? You can tell all the characteristics of an element just by looking at its position on the table. So horizontal rows, periods one through seven. The same period has the same number of atomic orbitals, essentially where the electrons are orbiting around the nucleus. So you've got one orbital in the first row, you've got two orbitals in the second row, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's also vertical columns along the periodic table. Those are groups one through 18, and the same group have same chemical and physical properties. So the noble gases on the far right don't react with anything. They're very inert. And then on the left, all the way on the left, we've got the alkali metals, which are super reactive, and they usually carry a plus one charge, and they react vigorously with water, and, you know, hydrogen's up there, and it just explodes if it can, no matter what. It's crazy. And each family has a name, but they are also grouped into those families so that they all share properties. Even if we don't have an element to fill in the space, we know what the element will do because of how this all fits together. And Mendeleev recognized that, even though he couldn't fill in the table, and we haven't even filled it all the way in. And he was, remember, in the 1860s. So just a quick glance at the periodic table, just to illustrate its perfection, you can see the element, whether or not it conducts electricity, whether it's a hard or soft material, the type of chemical reaction it would have, the atomic weight of it, and so much more stuff. I mean, there's just so much information at a glance on this tool. By design, as we've mentioned, the periodic table was supposed to be a work in progress. So once we've adopted it into science as a standard tool, we needed somebody to kind of manage it, right? That falls to the International Union of Pure Applied Chemistry, or IUPAC. We're going to call them EUPAC. I don't know if that's actually what they would say, but the EUPACs. They revise the periodic table as new data becomes available. When a scientist publishes that they've found a new element, you know, Tony Stark or whatever, they'll end up putting it onto the table where it belongs, and they will, once they've approved and figured it out. At the time we recorded this episode, the most recent version of the periodic table was approved back in February of 2010. So if you pull up a periodic table and you just really look at it, like read the elements, not the common ones like oxygen and carbon and nitrogen and potassium and helium and, you know, all of those. Check out the other little ones that you never look at, like Antimony. It's a weird word. Sounds sad. You know, somebody's antimonious. It's a word I just made up. 
it might mean that you're brittle. And since antimony is commonly used in makeup, it would probably mean that you're covering it up. That sounds real sad. There's also things like krypton, real element. It's in a noble gas family. We've got cyborgium and prasidimium and tantalum, how tantalizing, and selenium, like selenia gomez. I don't know. So who names these things? That's really the point. The scientist who synthesizes the new element is allowed to recommend a permanent name. Once it's approved, the IUPAC can decide whether or not that should be the name. So what happens if two scientists both discovered at about the same time? Well, the IUPAC has had the responsibility of naming elements since 1947 and doesn't, you know, hurry when it comes to figuring this out. They'd rather take their time. So it can take years to verify that an element is going to get a name that you suggested. Until they're verified, the IUPAC recommends scientists use a naming convention when discussing an element. So the associate director of IUPAC, Dr. Fabian Myers, explains the current naming process like this, and this is a quote. Since the sake of naming an element is essentially to avoid confusion, it is important to ensure that the proposed name is unique and has not been used earlier, even unofficially or temporarily, for a different element. So that means because they're scientists and because it's some kind of, you know, overarching bureaucracy, they got to do the most boring element name ever. So they use the digits of the atomic number assigned to a Latin root to name new elements while they're waiting to get the fun name. So for element 115, for example, which was discovered by both Russian and American scientists in early 2004, the temporary name is Unipentium. For 113, it's Unintrium. And the idea there is Un for one, Pent for five, and Eum because it's an element. So they're all Eums. So Unipentium. Boring. The naming convention was first published in 1990, and the idea was if we're not fighting it out, we can all agree that the element has this name, and then we can all move on while we wait to see what the fun name is going to be. However, there are some disagreements. It's like the nerdiest fights you will ever see, and it always happens in paper. You know, people are writing a paper, and they're writing a letter, and they're like, it should be called this because of this great person that we've decided to name. You know, element 41 was not agreed upon for 150 years because in America we called it columbium, and in Europe they called it neobium. The IUPAC decided officially to name it Neobium in 1949, whatever. There's also, though, the transfermium elements, which are super heavy elements with atomic numbers over 100. And for decades, Russians, Americans, and Germans were all fighting out who discovered which elements and when. They were offering different names, and different chemistry groups were using different names for the same element. And, you know, you go to a conference and you'd say, oh, tracium is the best element. And they'd say, oh, you mean bradium? And I'd say, no, tracium. And they'd say, no, bradium. And then we'd fight about it, but probably not with fists. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. So element 104 in American labs actually had this happen. It was called Rutherfordium after a New Zealand physicist, Ernest Rutherford. But in Russian labs, it was called Kurchatovium after Soviet physicist Igor Kurchatov. Naming of things is tough, like just across the board. You discover a new bug, you would hope that you get to name it, unless somebody else also discovered that new bug. Recently, they had to go through all of these different discoveries and found out there were a bunch of species that had two different names, but they were the same species. At least in this case, we can look at the atomic numbers, the number of protons, and say, oh, we've already got that one. We don't need, you know, don't need that. 
So it's really good that we have the IUPAC to help us name these things. And it's kind of incredible to watch the nationalism and the pride of these scientists who are discovering these things. But in the end, the periodic table is a tool to help us understand and rationalize and organize the world around us in the nerdiest and most incredible way ever. You know, this old Russian Santa Claus stinky dude came up with this idea in a dream, and we still use it more than 150 years later. That's crazy. And kind of why science is amazing. Because we've added dozens of elements to this template, and it just keeps working for us. It's really stood the test of time. And it seems like it's going to keep doing so. It's evolving as we learn more about the universe, and there's lots of space left. We're not even sure how far this thing goes. That's why science is so incredible. Thanks so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. I really hope you loved this episode. If you did, leave us a rating. Share us with your friends. I've read the iTunes ratings, and y'all are awesome. Thank you so much for leaving those. As long as you're feeling excited, you can come find me on YouTube, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for Trace Dominguez. You can also find Seeker and all our other shows on YouTube and Facebook. We release new science videos every single day. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode in 2015 was written by Andreas Pearson, and in 2018 was produced by Trace Dominguez. Our associate producers were Blair Battenberg and Victoria Barrios. The intern in 2018 was Cara McGurlin. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be back next week with more incredible stories from science, and I am Trace. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.